these kind of like moments in your life where you're sort of reflecting on, you know, what is it that I'm sort of doing? And then you're like, hang on a minute, you know, there's opportunity here. You know, life is kind of short. I've got to kind of take the leap here. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Jesse Clark is a co-founder of Marco AI and joins us today from Melbourne, Australia. I am joining you from my home where we are having a piano practice in the background. If you hear anything, uh, that's what that is. Marco is a multimodal vector search engine. Uh, Jesse will tell us all about its horizontal scalability. They've got a fancy query DSL that helps with pre-filtering. It has some search highlighting features. It's quickly grown to almost 3,000 GitHub stars, yet being only less than a year old. Jesse, did you anticipate this amount of enthusiasm for vector search and its ilk when you set out to start Marco? Of course I did. Uh, no, I did. No, I did not probably quite uh, expect it to sort of reach the point it has now. I mean, I think we knew, you know, certainly when we were thinking about Marco and starting it, that there was, you know, a huge opportunity around vector search and machine learning based search. But I think since Stable Diffusion came out with the generative AI and then ChatGPT, the role of, you know, vector search, vector databases has just kind of exploded. So it's been, um, I think, you know, really fortuitous timing. And yeah, it's really exciting to be kind of really in, in amongst it. I imagine when anybody starts a new effort company project, they, they wonder, is anybody even going to care? Like, you know, maybe, maybe it's just going to be crickets. And in fact, the whole world's attention seems to be on just what you're doing. So kudos for your prognostication. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think you've sort of got to get through that, I think, and, and sort of eventually you get to a point where you've got something that is usable and people really can, you know, start to actually make, you know, create value and make things out of it. And I think that's, you've just sort of got to have enough conviction to get to the point where you can build something that is usable, take it from that kind of idea to implementation and actually then, you know, becomes tangible. So getting through that barrier, I think, is really key. So I want to get into your story, but first I want the audience to have some context for what you do and what we're discussing and so we should talk briefly about the project. And maybe the best way to do that is, I imagine some people come to this conversation with some context on the industry. Maybe you could disambiguate for us kind of what Marco does versus other vector search or vector database solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So sort of succinctly, Marco is end-to-end -end vector search engine. And sort of in that name, I think it sort of encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to do we really want it to be end-to-end, -end. so it's documents in, it's documents out, it's very developer-friendly. You know, a lot of the abstractions, the transformations, the machine learning inference, you know, the vector storage is really taken care of on behalf of the user so that they can really get started on building actual search applications. And so, yeah, really focusing on being able to actually provide this kind of end-to-end -end solution. And it works, you know, again, then across modalities. So we have, you know, you can index text, you can search across text, you can search across images, you can extend that to videos, you know, and then the abstraction is very easily taken over to audio and things like that. And so really about bringing, you know, this end-to-end -end vector search experience to developers, a couple of lines of code. And then certainly the other focuses are, you know, I think we had, a, you know, from the start really about production workloads and really looking at real-time search, because this is also incredibly tricky from the sort of production engineering cloud deployment side of things. So not only do you have the kind of, decisions to make around the machine learning and the inference and, and all those kind of design decisions. It's about how do you actually make it scalable, real-time search, low latency. So that's also been a big focus for us. Yeah. Maybe to repeat some of what you said. So if somebody wanted to have vector search, they're going to need a place to store documents, a database, 
a place to store embeddings, another kind of database. And they're going to need a framework, a functions, and a programming model to kind of tie these things together. You offer all those things. That's the end-to-end solution. Exactly. Yeah, there's a few different pieces to make the kind of vector, you know, end-to-end vector search engine work. And so one of the, you know, critical pieces is this vector database, which we've heard a lot about, sort of takes in vectors or embeddings. You can sort of store them and then you can do this kind of fast lookup. But that's sort of the quite primitive operation that kind of powers a vector search engine. You've got to have the generation of the embeddings. You know, people have metadata. You know, they want to do keyword search. You want to do filtering over that as well. So all of these kind of other functionalities are also required to make it the sort of production system. It's not just this kind of simple vectors in search for them. There's quite a lot more to actually make it make it really useful. And that's what Marco is aiming to solve. So we take care of the vector storage for you, all of the transformations, and then all of that kind of just bookkeeping that's required as well for, you know, how do you actually format the data, keep the metadata. We want to have, you know, consistency, you know, acid transactions, that kind of stuff. So it's really trying to make it this production system that can really make developers just get up and going very quickly. Well, good. We'll, we'll circle back to the product and project some more and its capabilities in a moment. Now that we've got that context, what brought you to this at this point in time? You have a long history in machine learning. And maybe that helped you to see around the corner and realize the need for this. Yeah, I can. Yeah, sort of where do I start? I think, yeah, I've had a reasonable history in machine learning, although it felt like I was late when I started, but now I feel like I was probably early. Yeah, maybe it was good insight. It could have been good timing. It could have been a combination. But yeah, my background originally was in physics. I sort of was quite enamored with physics when I was growing up in the Australian country and used to look at, there was no light pollution. You could look out at the stars and it was incredibly clean sky with all these galaxies. And, you know, that was sort of where I was like, hang on a minute, you know, I think I think I want to try and understand that a bit more. So, yeah, I went to, to university, studied space science, maths and physics, and then, yeah, fell into a PhD into a, you know, an area that I wasn't so familiar with, with physics, but that was where I kind of started to fall in love, I think, with computers and actually sort of this kind of computational, you know, analysis and numerical computing and, and optimization algorithms, which is just the foundations of, of machine learning. And so that was where I also sort of started, I think, as well in sort of dabbling in sort of open source, although I didn't quite realize it at the time I was sort of developing after my PhD, developed some software to help other people do analysis for the, you know, the stuff that we were doing. We were collecting huge amounts of data very much a big data kind of you know problem. We had petabytes of data, and this was probably 15 years ago. We used to carry suitcases of hard drives back from experiments. You know, it was like rough and ready, and we had just incredible amounts of data. And so, yeah, started building out programs to help other people analyze their data. And it was interesting in our kind of field, the sort of people were very protective about their algorithms and their code because it was a competitive advantage from a kind of publishing and sort of experimental point of view, which was quite interesting, you know, because the motivation for doing a lot of the science was kind of to be open and actually be able to share these kind of innovations. And so that was kind of where I got a flavor for it, you know, after my PhD was to do this open source development. And then, yeah, I stayed in physics for a while. I was living overseas, yeah, I was in, in London and in the US. And then it was around, you know, 2013, I was living in Palo Alto. I was working at Stanford doing physics research. And then, you know, I was sort of looking around, I was literally walking down, you know, University Avenue and it's like, hang on a minute, there's this huge kind of opportunity here. There's a lot of data science coming out, you know, it was really starting to become quite popular and impactful. And I think people started to see a lot of value in, you know, these kind of data analysis, the early stages of machine learning and how that could impact businesses. And so I was in the best place at the best time. I felt like really recognizing that. And sort of, yeah, decided to leave my career in physics, which was going quite well. And I joined Stitch Fix at the time, you know, it was going through rapid growth. It was really innovative in terms of how they were using data. Eric Colson and, and Katrina Lake had built out a big 
algorithms organization. You know, there was a lot of ex-physics PhDs there. You know, it's a really, really good mix of people. And so that was, you know, yeah, great kind of introduction. That's where I sort of started a lot of my industry-based machine learning and then sort of went from there, you know, spent time at Amazon four and a half years, did a mix of things, you know, worked in robotics, doing a lot of, you know, intelligence development for item manipulation robots and computer vision as well there. And then the sort of final piece that kind of, I think really sort of spurred me on to start Marco was yeah working a bit in visual search. So this was, you know, around, yeah, looking for using multimodal search effectively, right? Like images and text and, you know, shopping on amazon.com or, you know, any other, not to necessarily call out Amazon, but uh, other retailers, it's like, I can search for a t-shirt and that's great. And I can find one, but then, you know, there was this problem. It's like, I want that t-shirt, but I want it with a pocket or I want it to have long sleeves or stripes. And this kind of navigating a catalog like that just wasn't possible. You have these kind of rigid taxonomies, you know, you can't cut across it in these kind of semantic directions, which mean a lot, I think, to, to users. And so that's where these ideas started to come about that, hang on a minute, there's this opportunity to do something kind of kind of more. And we'd seen some innovations around multimodal representations. So being able to sort of image and text living in the sort of same space. And so you could query, you know, text with images, images with text. And so, yeah, that was sort of the precipitous for, for Marco and, and where it all started. Before we get back to vector search, your background, I mean, you, uh, Stitch Fix is seen as a premier machine learning institution, maybe surprising to some. And, uh, you know, Amazon, similarly, I'm curious, do you learn more in industry or in academia if you want to be cutting edge in this field? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something actually I've thought a lot about. I think they have different strengths. The short answer is the rubber meets the road and sort of the money is generated from production systems in industry. And so I think that's that's a really good opportunity to learn because, you know, that's just where, where it happens. And when you put stuff into production, there's really no hiding. You know, if it works or it doesn't work, you A-B test it, you know, you do other testing. Like it's very clear. There's no kind of hiding. Whereas I felt like in academia doing research, you could always kind of kick the can down the road. You know, this hard problem, which we couldn't solve now, we can come back to that later. But, you know, certainly in industry, there's no real, you know, a lot of that, you know, you've got to, if you've got an MVP out, it's still got to, you know, create some kind of yeah, value. you just got to ship something. You got to ship yeah. something. So, you know, I think industry is a great place. And I mean, you know, I think certainly as, you know, everything's evolved, you know, a lot more of the sort of flavor of academia has sort of, you know, crept into parts of industry. So it's got a really good mix, at least from my perspective about this kind of, some of the academic kind of learnings, but it's about, you know, really making things work and, and sort of iterating fast. So you launched Marco soon after Dolly and maybe similar to when stability was happening in mid-journey. You launched as being multimodal and image was everything. And now we're seeing, we're kind of living through a, a wave of natural language, it seems. And maybe maybe these things, you know, we're, we're looking at too close uh, Zoom. And, and if we, we take a step back a couple of years, we'll realize that everything was kind of moving at the same pace. Is this a a language thing, uh, an image thing, or is it everything? And are they moving at kind of consistent paces, the two of them? I think so. I mean, I think uh, there's been a huge cross-pollination, I think, as well, between the language and the images. Yeah, the language has come back. I mean, I think the future is multimodal. You know, I don't think that's going to change. I mean, I think we can see just how, you know, having this additional grounding from the other signals, you know, sort of, I think we've seen is just so powerful. Um, you know, the you know, do you need you know four or five modalities? I don't know, but I think certainly greater than one. Yeah, I mean, images is you know, I mean, I've always had a, also a love with images, so I've been somewhat biased with them. I think from my sort of earlier days, I think it ebbs and flows, but they're moving very, very fast. I mean, I think it just depends on where the kind of spotlight is a little bit in the media as well. I mean, you look at the innovation still in the the image generation. I mean, it's still absolutely incredible, and some of the you know some of the recent ones around you know, just three reconstructions from 2D views, Nerf, all of this kind of stuff from the image domain is just still absolutely speeding ahead. So, 
yeah, I think they're both just moving really fast. I don't, I don't think that um, it's hard to pick one. I think. Yeah, yeah. Now, circling back to Marco, and we should throw in elements of your story in the last year, but I want to float some use cases by you. One, one use case that I think is kind of the bread and butter for Marco is like I have a bunch of documents that I want to search, and the state of the art from a year ago is is I put it in Elastic or something, and I get keywords, but I miss out on a lot of similarity. And, and meaning and context-rich searching. And maybe one of the hard parts of doing context-rich searching has been the variable length of documents and what exactly do you return? And Marco helps you kind of, it, it has an opinion and a method for serving your results. Is this the bread and butter? Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the text-based text, text -based search, um, and particularly for vector search, it is, you know, still a huge, it's a huge use case, um, you know, and, and absolutely, we see a lot of users and a lot of customers, you know, using it for this way. And like you said, again, you know, and I think this is where the kind of end-to-end -end vector search engine comes in, because, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you need to make about how do you actually, you know, the models themselves have a sort of fixed context length, you know, for the most part. And that sort of, that means how much you can kind of, it can sort of see at any one time. Um, and depending on the model, right, this can be quite small, can be quite large. I mean, and that's one of the big, big innovations I think we've seen with like the, you know, GPT et al kind of recent innovations is these large context lengths from these large language models enables these really interesting use cases. But, you know, it's the same kind of context length, you know, exactly the same that we see with these embedding models. And so you've got a fixed context length. So it's, it's sort of like how much text at any one time can it kind of understand? And so, yeah, we, we make decisions about how we can automate that kind of process. And so you can sort of take long documents and we can automatically break it up into smaller ones. Uh, you can create, you know, embeddings and vectors from those smaller chunks, and then you can search over all of them. So then, you know, even a document itself can return just a subpart, which is effectively the highlight. And so it becomes incredibly convenient for a user to just insert documents. And then when they search and return, not only do they get the relevant document, but they get the relevant highlights. There's also, yeah, lots of other, other ways that you can use this kind of paradigm to improve retrieval performance as well. What about the use case of like fine tuning an existing model? I think there people are using some vector databases and, and resources for that. Does Marco play a role there? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what we've seen is the sort of rise of foundation models or these zero shot models that are really good at general tasks, right? They're kind of being trained on a large corpus of data and then they sort of generalize reasonably well to kind of most domains i mean specialist domains but then even what people find is that's a great way to start and they can get sort of very good performance but then almost always you know everyone wants kind of better performance and so that's where the fine tuning comes in the domain specific kind of modeling and yeah and absolutely marco really encourages that when you can sort of you know load in your custom models and then you can get going on your own, you know, exactly the same thing. You just sort of, you know, configure the settings, you put in the, the custom model and off you go, documents in, documents out. But again, it's your now it's your fine-tuned model. So I guess this is just my opportunity to clarify things on my end. In the first scenario we talked about, you mentioned an embedding model. So in that instance, I don't need like a, a chat GPT or a, or a, a GPT-4 type model. I just need a model that's going to convert my documents into embeddings. Marco wouldn't offer me that. I, I, I bring my own embedding model, I'll bring it to Marco and documents in, documents out. Yeah, so both actually. So we have, you know, a lot of default models, uh, sort of, you know, a registry that you can choose from to get started. Because, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of really good models now, you know, that have been contributed that are open source that allow, you know, people to get really, you know, get started with pretty good results, you know, from day one. And so we support all of those models. Um, in fact, I think, you know, and certainly the state of the art, you know, most of those are out of open source at the moment. 
So yeah, we support all of those kind of models so people can get started and really try and build that MVP, right? Like I think, you know, do I need a fine tune model? I don't know. I've got to build my kind of, you know, there's a whole lot to go before you go down that kind of path. And so, yeah, really lowering that barrier to entry and then they can assess it, right? Like it's like, hey, it's failing in these kind of areas. You know, this is actually where I need to kind of spend the time in fine tuning it. And that can also, you know, really cut down your iteration cycles by getting that feedback and just sort of seeing where are the challenging parts and tuning the model to get over that. While we're on the topic of use cases, I imagine almost any organization in the world could benefit from Marco. And I also imagine that few organizations know exactly that thing that would benefit them, you know, what, what exactly they're looking for. I imagine you're left with the challenge of like kind of helping people map their general interests and curiosity to like, a, you know, here's use case one or two or three. And is that something the the industry is solving for people or, or is that something you're, you're having to kind of block and tackle on your own? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think the education piece, um, I think it's been incredibly, you know, the recent, yeah, just, I mean, the recent wave of innovation in AI has been incredibly beneficial from that kind of educational piece because, you know, people's awareness of, of the sort of concepts around, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning are much are much better than what they were, say, a year ago. And that includes things like, you know, vector databases and, and vector stores. But I think as well, we're sort of trying to, you know, really join the dots and sort of help people with that self-discovery. Like you said, you know, like I've got a problem and it's like, hang on, you know, hang on a minute, that's my problem. I can, I can use this to solve that. And so I think that's actually been incredibly, you know, it's been such a huge part actually for driving, um, you know, people to adopt it is, is actually through this kind of, you know, content generation that we do in the blog um, and, you know, which we really want to keep doing. It's, you know, it serves, you know, many, many good, you know, use cases. You can really just point people to these kind of examples, you know, these end-to-end examples and this self-discovery has really helped. So it's definitely a combination of, yeah, the industry is really helping a lot. Um, and then, you know, certainly just, you know, actually putting in the effort and really trying to generate high quality content, I think as well, to help users, you know, do that self-discovery process. Maybe we go back to the story some, you had this idea to, to leave in your jobs to go and kind of pursue this, what were the initial steps and how soon maybe did this become open source? And what was that kind of decision process like? I think it was just sort of something that was burning, you know, in my mind. And I was sort of looking around, you know, also these kind of like moments in your life where you're sort of reflecting on, you know, what is it that I'm sort of doing? And then you're like, hang on a minute, you know, there's opportunity here, you know, life is kind of short. I've got to kind of take the leap here. And so that was kind of what happened. And I think it was really, I was sort of poking around, you know, trying to think, how do I, you know, I had these ideas about, you know, vector search and particularly multimodal search. And it's sort of like very much new the machine learning, but it's like, hang on a minute, how do you build a managed service around this? How do you kind of actually build a, a sort of company? And that's, so I sort of sort of started to speak to a few people I knew in the industry to sort of, you know, scope it out. Like what's the kind of process here? And that was kind of chugging along. But then I, I got introduced to my co-founder, Tom, through, through a mutual friend um, from Amazon actually as well. And that's kind of where it was all, you know, it, everything kind of really happened. So Tom had been, you know, trying to, you know, de- been developing his own startup as well and was looking at sort of serverless Elasticsearch and databases and really looking at managed cloud and how to make that easy for, for developers and was looking to, you know, leverage a lot of the vector search as well. And so I was looking, you know, I had a lot of the vector search and was looking to enable the cloud and how do we actually do that? And so that's kind of where we got together and, and you know, it was just like a really good, I think, match in terms of, you know, what we wanted to do and our kind of skill sets we could cover off on the two big components um, and so, yeah, we sort of just, you know, iterated on, on the ideas, I think, and then we're able to get some, some, some early stage, you know, funding and yeah, sort of start from there and quit, you know, I sort of decided to just, you know, this is it. I'm, you know, I'm all in, right. I'm leaving my job and, um, you know, build Marco into, you know, something that's, you know, incredibly 
I think beneficial and useful for people. And so that was kind of, yeah, that's sort of how it, how it started. And I think in terms of the open source, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the first thing that we kind of decided, but it became really natural evolution. I can't remember when it was, but we were sort of thinking about it and you know, how we're going to develop Marco. And then it just became evident that, you know, actually open sourcing, it was going to be, you know, a really good option. And that there was a lot of benefit to actually doing this, you know, in terms of just not only like, you know, as a contribution, you know, beneficiary of open source for so many years, not just a contribution kind of back, but, you know, you can get very early feedback, right? Like launch early features and this fast iterative loop, right? Just fast, fast feedback. I think that's kind of, you know, also a huge benefit. We talked a bit before we started recording today about the language people are using to describe this field. I think tensors, embeddings, vectors, are these all the same word? And I think Marco has described itself as, as tensor search in the past, vector search some. How do you how do you keep up with kind of where the marketing is headed? Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a hot topic and it's somewhat contentious. The use of tensors in machine learning, you know, I think now it's got a reasonably well-established kind of, you know, terminology effectively is used as a placeholder for sort of you know, multidimensional data, right? Multidimensional arrays. But from the, you know, sort of pure physics point of view, you know, this is somewhat incorrect. And so, you know, I think that can certainly rile a few feathers. But I think at this point, you know, machine learning has adopted it to mean, you know, this kind of higher order abstraction, right, of, of vectors and matrices. That's sort of how it's been represented. And so that's what we sort of, that was the spirit that we were taking it in. And so instead of just a vector, and that was, you know, the idea is, as well as that, you know, the information that we have is, you know, it's really rich, you know, documents aren't just, you know, a single representation, particularly long documents. And so, you know, actually having, you know, multiple vectors, these much richer representations, much higher dimensional, this kind of tensor-based representations, um, you know, made a lot of sense. And so that's where the idea from this sort of tensor search you know, language came from really trying to, you know, show that it's this kind of, gen, you know, slightly more generalization of this vector search and that you could, you know, in fact, you don't even need to have, you know, it can be different modalities. You know, you can have, um, you can imagine, you know, a video, you can have, you know, embeddings and vectors for different parts of the video documents, you can have, you know, for different parts. Um, even an image, you can chunk it up and have different vectors for different parts of the image. And so there's a lot of, you know, and even in queries, right, you can have multiple vectors for a query. You don't have to have just a single vector for a query. And so these, you know, representations and queries are just made a lot more sense, I think, to sort of start talking in this, in this tensor-based way. Yeah, whenever somebody's kind of described embeddings tensors to me, you know, it sounds like this abstraction from our language, you know, our words have meaning and these learning represents kind of concepts or ideas and embeddings have this kind of mathematical representation of concepts and ideas. Does this mean that embeddings are kind of a universal language and are those ideas and concepts I mean, they're not uh, standard, right? I mean, uh, your embeddings don't look like my embeddings, and so we, they don't mean the same thing, or do they? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. They probably don't right now, but maybe they do in the future. Yeah, I mean, the embeddings, yeah, like you said, are able to, yeah, they sort of capture a lot of a lot of meaning, and they represent, you know, it's it's a nice, it's a really nice interface, basically, between you know, sort of rough, unstructured data. and then you know something that's kind of you know well organized. and that's that's really a key point of the whole embedding. And vector representation is that you can kind of take, you know, this rough and ready data and put it down into this kind of common interface, which allows you then to have, you know, all sorts of other operations over that because you can kind of standardize things. But yeah, exactly. The different models, you know, trained on different data will have different kind of representations of their internal space. You know, different concepts get mapped to different parts depending on what the data is. You know, some concepts won't even be present, you know, uh, or won't have really any good understanding of those, again, depending on the data. Um, and so, yeah, I think at this stage, depending, yeah, again, it sort of depends, but, you know, your embeddings might be the same as my embeddings. It depends a lot on the data and then how the models are trained. But it certainly, I think we can also see that, you know, there's a lot of foundation models that have somewhat universal representations. 
But I think the same with language writers, it's very nuanced. It's hard to you know, have kind of universal descriptions for things. A lot of it depends on context, I think, as well. Well, I guess presumably these embeddings describe relationships between concepts. And so if, 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 if your data covers different concepts than my data, then we won't have overlap. But if they, you know, if it's similar data, they'll probably arrive at similar conceptual nodes and then they would have cousin concepts. Yeah, indeed. And I think that's, you know, we've seen as well with some of these other models where you actually take, you know, embedding models from two different domains and now you can actually kind of, you know, actually learn a, a joint representation with relatively few, you know, parameters or little effort. So you can take, you know, a pre-trained text embedding model. You can take a pre-trained, you know, vision model. They've both got embeddings and then you can use, you know, the right data. Uh, you can actually start to map these to the same space. And so, yeah, certainly we're seeing a lot more of that. I think we'll see a lot more of that because, you know, certainly this composability as well that we've seen in, in sort of machine learning. So if you can train a, you know, a text model in isolation, just on text data, you don't need this really, you know, paired data, for example, and you can train a, a vision model on its own sort of vision data and do that at scale. And then you can sort of use, you know, a smaller representative set to kind of join them together, I think, you know, and then actually switch these models out. You know, if you've got a better text model, you can switch it out later. You know, I think this is actually what we're seeing as well as being a really powerful kind of paradigm. The use cases I brought up were mostly text use cases. And I think it would be great to hear from you some of these multimodal use cases. Image search seems like an obvious kind of text return images and maybe image similarity search. Like, you know, here's an image. Can you can you find me similar images? What are some things that people probably don't realize they could benefit from a multimodal search? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a huge, huge area of applications. And I mean, image, you know, uh, you know, an image is worth a thousand words kind of thing. So there's a huge amount of data that is also contained in them. But again, you know, I think this combination of text and images is really powerful. We're seeing, you know, a lot of, I think a lot of opportunity in sort of, you know, catalog search, e-commerce, you know, it's traditionally been a lot of text-based search, but the images themselves, and there's, you know, the, <clears throat> the one thing these these verticals benefit from is they have, you know, a lot of rich image data, for example, they might have 10 images for an item, you know, maybe a video um, plus the structured data. And so, the multimodal search is really being able to use all of that data together. And so it's not just the text, not just the title. Uh, it's not just one image, right? It's like actually this kind of combination. And so the search experience becomes much better um, because now you can sort of do your vague, you know, you sort of got your vague queries, you know, a shirt or something like that, and you can populate it with shirts, but then you can do, you know, long sleeve shirt with, you know, stripes and a pocket. And then, you know, you also get that. Um, and so, you know, in terms of that kind of application, um, I think it's, it's very well suited. Um, we see a lot of other, you know, sort of adjacent ones, you know, things like compliance, right? Like people looking for, for particular concepts and images. Um, yeah, image search itself is just a, you know, a huge, huge area. A lot of people have lots of images, um, you know, think about, you know, real estate, for example, you know, there's, there's huge, huge volumes of, of data um, that gets collected um, and often without metadata. And so, you know, these methods, the multimodal search really allows a lot of that kind of discovery aspect as well. You know, you've got a hundred million images, you know, what's in there. We also see a lot of, yeah, actually able to find kind of content that people may not want as well. It's very good at finding that, um, you know, that even if you've got metadata that, you know, people are trying to do, you know, if someone's trying to circumvent systems and so they're trying to, maybe some, some content's not allowed, you know, the images are usually pretty good at actually picking that up as well, even if it's not in the metadata. So, yeah, it's been a, a broad range of, of applications, but certainly, you know, large scale sort of product catalog e-commerce has been a big area. So we have a real estate insurance company in the portfolio and your example there kind of spawned an idea. Presumably today, people gather information about property, usually just verbally. Like, you know, tell us what kind of roof do you have? Is it pitched? Is it tin? Is it? And you could gather that metadata through images and map it to words and, and, and you know, kind of have a synthesis of 
auto-generated risk information. That's exactly right. Um, and so, yeah, this, the search sort of the vector search paradigm actually is, is very flexible. And so I think people have this notion of what the search should be. You sort of have a query comes in, it goes against some documents and something's returned, but there's lots of ways to kind of frame it. And like you said, you know, your query here can be the image and then what you're actually searching over can be all sorts of attribute labels. And so now you're finding what are the best matches in terms of attribute labels. And so you can do this kind of, you know, zero shot classification at scale, which is exactly like you said. So you can enrich the data, you know, through this process, or you can just simply search across, you know, the images themselves. So it's, yeah, it's very flexible in that sense as well. What's the state of uh, Marco today and how can folks interested in this industry level up uh, through Marco? What do they, you know, what's the next step to get involved, that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, if they want to level up with Marco, I think, yeah, no, head over to the GitHub. We have a really active, you know, development um, and, and really just start getting, you know, we've got a great getting started guide. You know, we sort of pride ourselves on the developer experience, you know, getting started in three lines of code. We take that very seriously and we really want people to be able to kind of, get up and going with Marco. So yeah, head over, you know, the GitHub, um, you know, has a plethora of kind of examples to get you started. Um, and then, yeah, we certainly have, you know, a lot of examples and and the blog um, as well to kind of go into more depth um, as well. And we kind of continue to add content there and we'll keep doing that. I think that's, you know, again, from the sort of Stitch Fix days, I sort of saw how valuable that kind of like, you know, really high quality content was on a blog. And I think we want to keep that going. So yeah, that's sort of, that's how you get started. I mean, where is Marco today? Yeah, we're sort of, you know, developing trying to really develop as you know as fast as we can and, and get a lot of features in there you know i think we have a huge amount of ideas um and really it's just about you know getting them now into the product and, and sort of keeping it you know the high quality and then we also have you know for people we've seen as well you know building applications right is is you know managed services you know people just want to be able to get started and going and so you know we've got a pre-release of our managed service and so people can also um, you know get to that from our website you know there's a link and you can sign up um, and there's also links from you know from the readme on our github um, so if you're just looking for you know managed cloud you know managed service of, of marco you know you can also get in contact and do that and so open source is a great way to get started and then we've seen a lot of you know users start with open source and then be like yep this is what i want you know now let's get the managed service and you know let's just keep building Anything we didn't cover, Jesse, that you wanted to cover? We've kind of bounced around quite a bit. The only thing was potentially like, you know, where everything's going, I think. Where we started, you know, there's a bunch of use cases which have emerged, which I probably didn't even think about particularly closely a year ago. You know, certainly the impact with generative AI, I think, is, you know, immense. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, Marco is, is absolutely perfect, you know, to use as kind of this memory or repository of knowledge for large language models. Even before, uh, you know, ChatGPT came out, we were, you know, sort of experimenting with, you know, the retrieval augmented generation and, and things like that. And so, you know, being able to connect these generative models to Marco. So, for example, you know, connect ChatGPT. Now you can store information, you know, when you do a query or ask it a question, you can search and you can provide context to the large language model and you can get this incredibly rich experience, you know, from these, these processes. And you can do it with images as well. You can have this kind of conditional image generation. So... If someone's been using, you know, stable diffusion or mid-journey and you sort of ask for an image and it sort of generates it and it can be kind of all over the place. And so, you know, there's been other, the, you know, other model developments which provide a lot of context like ControlNet. Um, and so now you can use Marco like a memory as well. So it's like, okay, I want to, you know, I want to generate an image of, you know, someone walking on the beach. And so you can actually use, you know, Marco to search for prototypes, for example, of people walking on the beach so that a lot of the actual, um, you know, scene construction is already kind of there and then the model can kind of fill in the rest and so you know providing context for these generative models i think is a huge opportunity um, for for products and applications like marco we're going to see you know huge evolution of 
of how this actually plays out, particularly around, yeah, you know, how do we actually, yeah, again, it'll be the same kind of problems that we see in search and information retrieval is, you know, you, if you start having language models, how do you find the best information to propagate for context? You know, it'll be a lot of you know, relevance and search ranking, uh, I think, coming into this as well. What I find fascinating with all the change happening is um, not only are people trying to figure out what the future looks like, but, you know, there's that adage like skate to where the puck is going. Where, where does the value accrue in in the future? And, you know, every day it's a new theory. There was a time when we thought open AI was going to rule the world. And, and now uh, the Google memo is saying that actually those are, you know, foundation models are, are basically commodities now. And the thinking was you couldn't really build an app on top of OpenAI, and now all the value goes to the apps built on, you know, what, how, how do you, Jesse, like sleep at night knowing that tomorrow the world's going to be uh, different again? Yeah, I mean, it's been, uh, it's definitely been a roller coaster and, you know, certainly some restless nights, you know, because you've seen, you know, the innovations come out and, you know, almost entire verticals are completely changed overnight. You know, in terms of the impact of AI, I think the biggest impact that's happening at the moment is on the people working in AI, you know, developing, you know, especially, you know, someone has been developed, you know, spending years, right, developing particular models and then all of a sudden, you know, a free open source or, or other kind of API comes out and, you know, makes it just lowers the barrier to entry again. You know, I don't have answers about the future. It's it's all very exciting and, and, and ever-changing. But I think, you know, the way we think about it is, you know, just focusing on invariance, right? Like what's not changing? And so we know, you know, for example, you know, exponential growth of information still, you know, majority of that's unstructured data. You know, people are still going to want to search that data. Machines are going to want to search that data. You know, there's a huge need for real-time search. That's not going to go away. Uh, and people still want relevant results. And so I think, you know, focusing on those kind of invariants, you know, is, is a way we're thinking about it. And sort of that's how we're navigating, you know, I think a lot of the change at the moment. And I still feel like that's really the right approach. Well, your, your gut served you well when you got into this um, endeavor. You, you were kind of spot on when you launched Marco. And so I, I expect you'll, you'll continue to see around the corners and know where to go next. Thank you. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, yeah, it's, um, yeah, you got to be nimble though as well. You got to kind of see these opportunities and, and you got to kind of be, yeah, aware of what's happening. It's, it's very dynamic, but yeah, exciting at the same time. Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. Given the pace of innovation, maybe we'll have to circle back with you in a few days even and, and figure out where we are next. Yeah, absolutely. Be my pleasure. We'll see what happens. You can subscribe to the podcast and check out our community Slack and newsletter at contributor.fyi. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.